Welcome to Talking Tech Transfer. My name is Thierry Helis, and this time we have something very different for you. We've partnered with 10U to bring you three exclusive panels hosted by Andrea Taylor, the Head of Strategic Partnerships at Edinburgh Innovations, recorded live in front of a high-caliber group of delegates. Andrea, welcome. Can you just give us an overview of what 10U is? Yes, so 10U is really the shorthand name for the ambitious transatlantic collaboration that brings together the leading tech transfer offices from universities across America, the UK and Europe to leverage cutting-edge research to tackle the global challenges. The members of the 10U are the Universities of Cambridge, Edinburgh, Oxford, Manchester, University College London and Imperial College London in the UK, KU Leuven from Belgium, and from the US, the Universities of Columbia, MIT and Stanford. And that makes up the 10U. Brilliant. And can you give us a quick introduction to the first panel? The first panel is going to be talking about how we celebrate university innovation and how the 10U is seeking to really highlight the innovation that's part of the universities. And speaking in that panel, we have a guest of the 10U, Ewan Robertson, who's the CEO of the Simons Foundation, but has also worked in New York under Mayor Bloomberg, developing its economic infrastructure. We then have Karen Immerglick, who's from the Stanford University, and Dermot O'Brien, who's head of Cambridge Enterprises, the commercial arm of Cambridge University. Thanks, Andrea. Let's hear their insights. So, Ewan, perhaps you can tell us a little bit from your experience about what success and celebrating success means in New York and how that's underpinned some of the work that you've been involved in. Sure. Thanks very much, everyone. It's nice to be here. So, yeah, I started this journey professionally, at least back in 2008, when I joined the Bloomberg administration in an economic development role. And I was telling some of my colleagues earlier that my first day on the job, actually, with the Economic Development Corporation was September 15th, 2008, which was the morning the markets opened after Lehman filed on the Sunday night. And so really what we did as a city in conjunction with the mayor and the deputy mayor was, you know, start to think about the future of the city's economy. And one of the things that we honed on pretty fast was that all of the major industry sectors in New York, whether that was financial services, media, tourism, even, even kind of healthcare, were going to be disrupted by technology and innovation. And that Within that space, therefore, in order for New York to maintain com- competitiveness and continue to grow in what was sure to be a very disrupted and challenging time because of what was happening with the global markets, we really needed to double down on and understand that ecosystem of, of innovation and technology and technology transfer. And again, all, you know, pretty fast, we realized that one of the major assets that we had as a city was the conglomeration of top tier universities and academic medical centers. And so we started to very intentionally engage with the leadership, each of those institutions. A lot of what we were doing in in the initial phases was really just convening, frankly, conversations like this. So we would bring together senior people from the universities, business leaders uh, from each of the sectors successively, venture capitalists and private equity people and angel funders, entrepreneurs, and have a set of facilitated conversations about the the particular sector that was under discussion and what the role of each of those entities in the ecosystem was. And then we would kind of use that to 
do some targeted programs, but also, frankly, to celebrate some successes and to kind of put out reports, do joint venturing in the sense of, you know, look for collaborations between, in some cases, the city government, the university, and a, a private sector partner. And a lot of it was about keeping that momentum and keeping that drumbeat going to change the perception, in some senses, change the self-perception of the city. Like, I think people had previously, if they thought of New York, they certainly thought of capital markets, but, you know, maybe they thought of the NASDAQ, right? Like, in, in terms of technology companies, it's where you go when you want to IPO. It's not necessarily a place that was seen to have a thriving ecosystem within the venture, within the venture space or within the early stage seed funding community. So part of it was about changing that narrative and changing that perception and self-perception. And then some more tangible things around actually doing programs to make that a reality. And I have to say that, you know, a big factor in this was sh showing up. And by, by that, I mean also like including the mayor, right? Working for a mayor at that time who was a business leader who understood the importance of the partnership between government policymakers and the private sector and who was respected largely by people in the private sector made a tremendous difference but being able to create that kind of that kind of narrative jointly so I'd like to now bring in um, Karen Immerglick from Stanford University to give us your perspective on the successes we see sort of in the US but then across the whole 10 u Karen Yes, absolutely. So I'm Karen from Stanford. So I think, you know, let's start with, with the pandemic. And, you know, one of the things, one of the first things that actually the 10 you discussed as a group was, you know, what are, what are you guys doing to, to address COVID at your universities? And, 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 you know, how is your tech transfer office involved? And it was a really interesting discussion. I know Oren Herskovitz, our colleague from Columbia, who couldn't be here, unfortunately, you know, he told a very compelling story about how they really wanted to create uh, protective equipment, and their their faculty came up with these new ideas for how to design them, but they didn't know how to get them manufactured quickly enough, and the tech transfer office just jumped in, and even though that's not really their their mandate, they jumped in and, and started talking to different companies and trying to... <laughs> help their, their scientists figure out how do I actually get these into distribution. And so, you know, there were, there were plenty of success stories to, to celebrate. I mean, of course, the, the vaccine, the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine is a clear example. So, so how do, you know, each of the individual universities celebrate this as well? You know, at Stanford, we created a, a separate website, a separate web page for all of our COVID-related technologies to really, you know, help everyone understand that, you know, these are ways that maybe we can help address the, the pandemic, but also making it easier for, for companies to, to access. You know, in terms of, again, coming back to the 10U, you know, we, we, so I come from Stanford and, and I think, you know, we have a long history of success and, and, and that's great. Our president, our current university president has made it very clear to everyone on, on the campus, you cannot rest on your laurels. You cannot, you can never think you're number one because once, once you think that you're not going to try hard enough. So you always have to keep trying harder. And, you know, within the context of 10U, it really gives a smaller forum, but with peer institutions to compare notes, to think about, you know, oh, they really do it a lot differently than we do. How can I apply that knowledge to, to what we're doing? But, but again, within a very different context. But I think we celebrate each other's successes quite a bit and are, are quite active in comparing notes. And, and I'd like to bring in Dermot O'Brien, so head of Cambridge Enterprises. 
to maybe reflect on the challenges in sustaining the narrative of success and, and how we can amplify that. Yeah, thank you. And nice to, nice to be here and to speak to everyone. I mean, I think the primary context for that is why do we need to do this Celebrate Success? And I think from my perspective, it's about using that success to reinforce the culture we want to create within our institutions. And then beyond that, the kind of interface we want to create with the venture community, with industry, and of course, with government. So from my perspective, when you think about how you do might sustain and amplify this, I think you have to think about it in three different strands. There's the first strand, which is about how do you enhance the relationship with the PI community and make them feel that the success that they've had and achieved through commercialization is one that they've done in partnership with the tech transfer office and with the commercialization units. I think it's really important that commercialization units move away from being viewed as a kind of regulator of the system or the patent office and get perceived as a partner in delivering value for the PIs and for the universities. And so simple things in my mind like... um having coffee mornings for those who filed invention disclosures, you know, having recognition events for those who've done licenses, things that actually bring people together in a collective way to share the good news of what's happened is really important. I think the second kind of layer around sustaining this idea of success is then at an institutional level. So how do you get the university leadership to buy into this is a critical third strand of what universities are about on top of, of course, the core education and research missions? And I think that comes back to, again, mechanisms through which faculty and indeed those within the TTO are recognized for the achievements that have come about. And I think this definitely comes back to improved storytelling, really. And we've seen it with the COVID example. I think it's very clear. I spoke to Phil Clare in Oxford, and I think he was saying at one point during the pandemic, Oxford was being mentioned in the press some ridiculous amount of times every day, mainly driven by the the vaccine. And that's what you want to see, this idea of connectivity between research and outcome and, uh, and public awareness. But another great example of that would be, I think maybe it was about seven or eight years ago, whenever the Startup Nation book came out around Israel, but they really began to define Israel's perception as a startup country and as a country committed to entrepreneurship and innovation. And so this idea of building narrative at an institutional level that connects the commercialization agenda with the overall mission of the organization I think is going to be really critical around that sustaining success piece. And then the final piece is how you sustain that with government. And I think that's where you move to a different kind of storytelling where you really try to get an integrated output across the sector that really begins to resonate at a political level. And that obviously comes back to economic indicators, which could be the amount of venture capital going into the sector, the amount of jobs created in the sector the amount of international investment that's come into the country on the back of those companies, and of course, the social impacts that come there. So I think if you take a stratified approach from a human level, the PI through an institutional level to a government level, you can create a framework through which you can begin to amplify and I think focus on building that uh, success story narrative. And just before we open this to the floor, you know, one of the benefits of having this group is the perspective that we can get from that transatlantic cross talk. So I wonder if I can, um, you know, just ask you to sort of comment on the perhaps the perceived differences in celebrating successes between the US and, and UK and Europe. Perhaps sort of somewhat stereotypically, we think of the US shouting and being proud of success and the UK and us in Europe being a little bit more humble. Is that too crude or is that the case? Or if so, what can we learn from our friends in the US? So perhaps you and I can ask you to initially comment on that perspective. Sure. As you make 
guess from my accent, I was born and raised in Brooklyn. No, I'm, I'm originally from Glasgow and spent a long time in London. So I've got a bit of a intercultural perspective. And look, you know, I think it is true that generally, culturally, certainly New Yorkers are not shy about celebrating their own success or, or boasting. There is, there does tend to be, I think, in, in the UK and some other places I spent some time in, in Canada. And it's the same there, this kind of reticence or reluctance to be seen to kind of praise yourself or be boastful, right? There's, there's kind of generally a, a cultural abreaction to that. But I think it's an important thing. I mean, you know, there's a line to walk there. You have to have substance, right? This isn't all, you know, there's got to be something substantive to talk about. But if you've got the substance, then why not make people aware of the great things that are happening? And part of it also picking up on what Dermot is saying, I think it's partly also, at least from my perspective and the work I was doing about creating a common language and a common frame of reference, right? So we were bringing together policymakers, investors, entrepreneurs, university people, and really through those conversations and those convenings, starting to develop a sense of an ecosystem and a community and, and the language in which to talk about that and describe that. And that then makes it easier to celebrate successes because everyone's kind of understands the framework that you're working in and has the same vernacular. So. Karen? Yes. So interesting that you would say that. And, and, um, I was just thinking about this was years ago, actually. I was waiting in the security line at the Oakland airport. So Oakland is, is across the bay from San Francisco. And while I was waiting in the line, I realized there was this immense banner right where everyone who could, who was waiting there in line could see. And it was a University of California banner that said, your University of California research has resulted in, I don't know, I forget what the numbers were, but, you know, X patents, X new drugs helping patients, X products on the market for societal impact. And I, I remember looking at that thinking, wow, you know, that, and that's in the airport. So, so yeah, yes, we, we do um, tend to, I think, promote that a lot more. And another thing I want to point out is, so for example, at Stanford, we're about to launch our life science incubator in the research park. Our president will be speaking at that. Our school of medicine dean will be speaking at that. We recently closed a relationship with an investor company, an, an unusual one. Again, there was a launch. Our president spoke. The dean of the school of medicine spoke. So it, it shows that the leadership of the university is celebrating these successes as well as, you know, the, the faculty and, and our office. And Dermot, just perhaps you want to finally reflect, do you think things to learn in the, in the UK and Europe are our leadership behind us celebrating success? Is there a greater role for them? Yeah, I do think that point of institutional leadership celebrating is very important. I mean, the truth is that the performance in the UK, because I've just come here from Ireland, I would look in at the UK and see it as, no question about it, a leader in the space and the track record of the institutions in delivering the space is really very significant. So there is visibility about that. I think there's also a truth that we have a wonderful capacity to begin to undermine that a little bit and to knock at it as opposed to elevate it. So I think that comes at a political level, at an institutional level. And I think there's a failure to understand that let's call it, in every leading institution, there are those who are detractors of this agenda and those who are supporters, I presume, even in the US, you know, but we seem to let the detractor voice become overly listened to in this environment. And I think it's really important we recognize and hear the positive stories too. And I think institutional support from the top can really help with that and make this a valid kind of third agenda for the university sector. 
Mm-hmm. Well, perhaps with that, I can maybe open to our audience and, and invite you. Do you have any perspectives on how in the UK we engage the sector of which you are part to sort of help with celebrating the success or what role you feel you can play or we can help with that? Does anyone have any perspectives that they'd like to bring? Hello, I'm Maxine Fakara, Chief Exec at Praxis Oral. I, I just wanted to reference the fact that we started almost 20 years ago with a US-UK partnership, actually. So it's, it's kind of interesting to have come full circle, I think. I mean, from my perspective, you know, having the 10U as this PR powerhouse that can support the things that we are trying to do is hugely valuable. We can do things at a level where we are, we are trying to celebrate the successes of the KU practitioners who are involved in the UK. And there are many brilliant stories to tell, but it's what audience, you know, we can reach. And so I think that's where the 10 you can help. Perhaps one of you want to comment on that, how we, you know, I think it's really important that we're keen that we build on that wider community. And I think Praxis is a great example of already sort of joining up that community and how we can leverage some of our experience through organisations such as Praxis. Karen, do you want to comment? Yeah, I mean, one example of um, some of the results of, of this exchange are in the context of working with venture capitalists. And Oren, again, my colleague from, from Columbia is not here. He organized a roundtable in the U.S. between, I think, six or seven of us universities and a half a dozen venture capitalists. And it, it was a roundtable to really talk about some of the issues we go through all the time when we're trying to do deals with each other. You know, how do we resolve this? There were a couple of areas where we basically agreed to disagree and, and, you know, that it probably depends on a case by case basis. But on points like basics around the structure of a license, what range should equity be? What, what range should, should the royalties be? And this was all life science focused. I should, I should mention. But, you know, we, we did come up with agreement and we also, developed a, a set of guidelines around the hows of, you know, how should we work together? What are some, some guidelines to make that process more efficient and smooth? And so, you know, that it was, a, it was really successful. You can find the results of that online. I think VC TTO roundtable, if you Google that. And now I understand that the UK is doing the same thing between their universities and the local venture community. So, th- so this is an example of how we can learn from each other, compare best practices and benefit. Any other questions? Tony Hickson, Cancer Research UK. I guess it's really interesting to see how the, the, the KE offices, the tech transfer offices have evolved. You, you mentioned mandate and going beyond the mandate. And that mandate has gradually expanded over time. It's got wider and wider. I guess because we're stepping in, it's not happening. So we're stepping into that void and helping to create incubators and accelerators and venture funds and student entrepreneurship schemes and all the things that the tech transfer office is now doing for the university, which is great. I guess my question is, is that where it ends? Do we just forever expand as organizations? Or is success that actually the ecosystem functions so well that this all happens? Academics naturally bump into VCs, naturally find space. And actually success would be going back to just being a patent office on your point, David, it would be the opposite because the ecosystem was functioning so well. David, do you want to give some perspective from Cambridge? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's interesting because we had meetings this morning and uh, 
But Karen and Leslie were talking about how in Stanford and MIT, the outreach to faculty isn't a big part of what they do. There's a kind of cultural sophistication amongst the faculty that they understand if they've got a invention disclosure or an opportunity for commercialization, where to go and how they might begin to deliver that. So I think there is some truth to that, Tony, which says that if we really got things to that kind of super mature stage, the need to fill gaps all the time may well reduce a little bit. Although having said that, the kind of counterpoint from those institutions was that one, the volume of stuff coming in is super high, but also the amount of entrepreneurial activity that's happening in those institutions, although not driven through the TTO, is still very present. And I think that'll be the real next step, which will be there may be an understanding of the kind of role the TTO plays for the institution, which results in that, let's call it that, importance on outreach. But I think there's a whole other layer then about can you get the institutional culture and the entrepreneurial commitment from across the institution so that you begin to see other things and other services you provide been taking on elsewhere. I suspect because we've been engineered differently now for the TTOs to be more central in the providing of those services that we'll never escape the need to continue to do that. So there's definitely, I think it'll continue to evolve is the point. And I think you're right. I think success probably is having less focus on that early stage idea identification that is now culturally coming from the PIs themselves and focusing a little bit more on the uh, other pieces, yeah. We'll take one more question before we move on. Thank you very much. I'm (laughs) Charles Price. I'm from Bayes. So I had a question about the New York experience. That was really great. You've come. Thank you. When you used the term tech transfer with Mayor Bloomberg, was that something that he kind of immediately got or was it something that kind of you needed to explain? I mean, people know what venture capital is. They know what kind of entrepreneurs are, startups are. But did he, did he get kind of the word tech transfer straight away? And then the follow-on question I had for you was when we think about London, uh, UK cities, but kind of London in particular, is there, is, is there a kind of role, do you think, for London to be thinking along the same lines as what you're doing in, um, in New York? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, I think definitely the mayor and also the deputy mayor and some of the other senior staff at City Hall, because of their business backgrounds and also because of their other engagements with the university sector. I mean, the, ma- the mayor is a huge uh, philanthropic funder, right, of, of various universities, had a pretty good understanding of, you know, the role that universities play in helping to drive technology and innovation, Part one subset of that being the transfer of specific technologies out of the university into the market, but by no means that that's the only role. In fact, one of the one of the major projects that I worked on under the Bloomberg administration was more about a talent supply pipeline and creating sort of higher quality and higher volumes of, of technology talent coming out of the university system. But yeah, I think they got it without too much explanation. Look, I think, you know, there, there, there is a role in this kind of thing for municipal government, particularly in large cities like London, where you have quite a complicated ecosystem and you kind of, there can be a valuable role for government and policymakers just to provide some connective tissue. Because, you know, when you, when you, when you operate the kind of scale of, of a city like New York or London, you know, it is often difficult sometimes for these different groups to naturally find one another. And I think that is a useful role that municipal governments can play. But, you know, in the U.S., state government plays some of this role as well. And, and then there's a big role for federal policymaking more around infrastructure and regulatory environment and that kind of thing. But cities are, are definitely, you know, kind of have to be quite practical in some senses and, and can engage with, you know, specific leaders or groups 
whether that's entrepreneurs, investors, you know, established established companies. So I, I could definitely see that potentially being a role for them. Thank you very much.